This message today is both for both for us within the church as we um, help one another belong and also help uh, people who are far from God find a place of belonging with Him. On the 13th of August 1993, I first realized I belonged to God. I was in my grandmother's spare room. I prayed a prayer and I sang for a few hours afterwards, just worship and praise to God. I belonged to God. I wonder if you've had a moment of realizing that you are a child of God. When was that for you? It might have been a process, but maybe over the years of that process, you've come to an understanding that there's been a process and you are actually a child of God's. If you haven't had that moment or process, you don't understand that, maybe today is the day. 13th of August, 1993, was my day. Eight years and two weeks later, I came across this verse in Isaiah. This is the one I esteem, says God. Those who are humble and contrite in spirit and who tremble at my words. It had a massive impact on me at that time. Completely undid me, if that's the right phrase. Weeping, sobbing, because I realized that I hadn't been living my life under God's words, taking it seriously. And God called me to be contrite in spirit. The phrase means to to repent, to actually realize our sin before God and say, God, I need you to actually do something about it. And as a 19-year-old, God humbled me. And this week, God has brought this verse and my birthday, my second birthday, to mind that I belong to God, but also as I belong to God, God wants me to be a person who trembles at his word, not just reads it and then forgets what it says, or reads it as, well, that's a nice story for Sunday school, people lowering a friend through a roof, and we could do a nice craft, and everyone says, yay, praise God at the end. It's not just a Sunday school story, this is scripture, this is God's words, and therefore... I'm going to deal with it in a different way. I wonder when the last time you trembled at God's words. And treated Scripture as if it was the King of Kings' message to you. As if it was God Almighty's word for you. As if our loving Heavenly Father had penned something for you. Like a note in a lunchbox from a father or mother to remind a child whilst they're away from from home to remind them how much they care. 
I wonder if, if you're going to treat Scripture this morning in that way, that it's God's words. If you'd like a Bible, please raise your hand and someone will, will come and bring one. We have already had the passage read to us from Mark chapter 2, verse 1 to 12. And the first verse there might have puzzled some people because it says a few days later, when Jesus again entered Capernaum, the people heard that he had come home. Where was Jesus' home? Say it louder. Well, a few people understand that Jesus' home was Nazareth. He grew up in Nazareth. And in that kind of area, where was he born? Bethlehem. A few more people are, are confident with that one. We know the Christmas story. If, yeah. um, Bethlehem, he was born. Nazareth, he grew up. So why does it say he lived in Capernaum? Anyone noticed that before? Or is it just a Sunday school story? Actually, Jesus had moved to Capernaum after John the Baptist had gone into prison. According to Matthew chapter 4, verse 12 to 17, it says that Jesus moved to Capernaum and lived there. And ministered around there and started preaching a message of repentance and believe that the kingdom of heaven has come near. And in this passage, what we see is a message of repenting in terms of changing our minds, not just turning away from sin and turning to God, but metanoia, the word repentance, is a changing of our way of thinking because the kingdom of heaven has come near. And we see in these verses the kingdom of heaven come near. I wonder if this morning God is going to change our ways of thinking. It's a beautiful passage. It shows us Jesus' power and ability. It shows us the commitment and determination of friends. It shows us Jesus' authority to forgive sins. It shows us also, though, that there are different ways of responding to what Jesus is doing. I believe that there's a message about belonging. And that's one of the reasons why we're looking at this passage today. And I want to, us to think of a question. Am I willing to do whatever it takes to bring people to the feet of Jesus, for Jesus to do for them what only Jesus can do? As I said, this is a message for people within the church as we um, help people within the church live with one another and belong to one another, but also whether we're willing to help people who are outside of the church to find their way to Jesus. Are we willing to do whatever it takes to bring people to the feet of Jesus so that Jesus can do for them what only Jesus can do? As I was going through this passage and thinking through this question and praying through this question, I realized, and I'm a pastor, so... I should say, oh yes, I'll do whatever it takes. But I realized that my answer actually wouldn't necessarily be yes all the time. Is it just me? Or would others also, if they're honest, say, no. Let's think of some examples. 
Would we be willing to never come to church on a Sunday if we were to go and meet people and bring them to Jesus on the street? Well, but I like church on a Sunday. Ooh, challenging. Would we be willing to go to Madrid like Hannah is doing? Where's Hannah gone? There. To do whatever it takes to go to somewhere else in the world to help people come to the feet of Jesus. Would we be willing to do that? Would we be willing to say something in work so that someone encounters something of Jesus? Would we be willing within church to move a chair to allow someone to come in to that place? Would we be willing for someone to sit in our chair? Oh, now we're getting personal. Some people are going, well, no. In, in the chair that we like. Or in a life group, would we be willing to allow someone to share their needs again and again and again and again? And we will listen and love them and pray for them and be persistent in loving them and caring for them again and again if it's going to helpfully and eventually bring them to Jesus. I wonder what your answer would be I put down some reasons why I would say no at times. My first one was, well, I don't care about them enough. Or I care about me too much. A third reason was a lack of belief that Jesus will meet them. And these are honest reflections from me. What are those things on your list? Fourth, maybe a lack of belief that Jesus would be able to help them. Fifth, just too busy. Sixth, linked to that, it's not just a feeling of being too busy, but I am too busy. And seven, I've tried before and nothing's happened. If your answer to this question isn't, yes, I am willing to do whatever it takes to bring people to the feet of Jesus, to allow Jesus to do for them what only Jesus can do, if your answer isn't yes, then what's on your list of reasons? We're going to look at four groups of people. Well, two groups and then two individuals. First of all, the friends. They make a decision to set out to see Jesus. How many friends were there? Uh, show me on your, fing- on, on your fingers. Who said more than four? Danny. Joanne. We've got to look at Scripture. If we're going to tremble at God's Word, we need to actually look at it and look at it carefully. It says, some men came. Bringing him, this is verse 3, bringing him to a, bringing to Jesus a paralyzed man carried by four of them. We can therefore assume that there's more than four. 
more than four friends that care enough for this man to bring him to Jesus. And their decision to go to Jesus was, reveals two things. One, they care enough about the person and they believe enough about Jesus. Let's think about caring enough about the person. They care enough to pick him up, to maybe listen to his request. He may have said, could you take me to Jesus? And this group of friends, they gather around and they are willing to have a go at taking him to Jesus. And they believe something about Jesus that causes them to go. What is it that they believe about Jesus? Well, maybe they've heard that Jesus can heal. In chapter 1, we see that he heals many people. He heals a man with leprosy. He drives out an impure, impure spirit. Jesus is a healer as well as a teacher. And they go. But these friends also don't give up. In verse 4, we see that there's a crowd. Well, we see that in verse 2, but then in verse 4, they encounter the crowd. Since they could not get to, to him, uh, so get him to Jesus because of the crowd, they made an opening to the roof above Jesus by digging through it and the, then lowered the mats uh, the man was lying on. They didn't give up. They did whatever it took to get their friend to the feet of Jesus, to allow Jesus to do for him whatever. Um, so the only thing that Jesus could, so the thing that only Jesus could do. Have you ever wondered why they did that? Why they didn't give up? Have you ever had a friend like that or someone in church that doesn't give up on you? Or maybe, did you have a friend that didn't give up on, on you and kept on trying to bring you to Jesus? I love their determination. I told this story in Robertswood School uh, back in February and a lot of the school the children clearly hadn't heard the story before. So when I read about the friends, people were saying they, they were really good friends, weren't they? They didn't just say, oh yeah, you're my friend, and then they went off on their own thing. They stuck with this, this, um, this man. I wonder if you are a friend like that to someone else. I wonder if you have friends like that within this church or community. What was the alternative decision for these friends? Well, first of all, they didn't need to go out um, of their way to take him to Jesus. So they could have said, no, I'm not bothered. I'm not going to bother. I'm just going to leave you where you are. But they do choose to go. But there's also an alternative decision moment when they get to the crowds, when there's a barrier. The crowd is a barrier, the roof is a barrier, and they, see, they go over that, they, they go through the barriers. But they could have decided, well, no, I'm not going to bother. 
That would have been awful. To bring the friend to Jesus and have his hope raised, but because they couldn't get there, to then just go home. I wonder if you've ever experienced someone stopping or giving up, bringing you to Jesus. And it might have been within a life group setting that someone has just said, actually, I, I, I can't cope with your needs anymore. I wonder if God is saying to us this morning, through these friends, through these two verses, verse 3 and 4, to be more like these friends in doing whatever it takes to bring people to Jesus. I want us to think about Jesus before he hears the thoughts of the Pharisees and then also after. So, Jesus part one. And I love this. The images this week are taken from The Chosen and it's a beautiful uh, episode where you see the, the love and excitement on Jesus' face. And he sees the, the love of the friends and their faith. And he says to the paralyzed man, son, your sins are forgiven. Now in that culture in those days, there was a thought that illness and disability was as a result of sin and it was judgment from God's. Either the person's sin or their parents' sin or generational sin. And the reason Jesus doesn't say, be healed straight away, is Jesus wants to deal with the heart before he brings a healing. He wants to deal with uh, the, the heart before the body. He wants to deal with the greater need, his spiritual condition before he deals with a physical one. He could have just said, be healed. But he chooses to do what only God can do, and that's proclaim forgiveness. And this man would have needed grace. As I said, the culture around at that time was that if you were ill or had disabilities and things like that, it was through judgment from God because of sin. And whilst it is true that some physical problems in those days and now are a result of sin, you can see that in John chapter 5, it's not the case then or now that illness and disability is always a result of sin and judgment. Please ensure that you're clear on what I'm saying on that. But this man who is lowered through the roof would have been in an environment where he would have believed that he was paralyzed because of his sin. And he's dealt with graciously by Jesus. The burden of his weight being lowered down by those ropes, by those friends, wasn't just his physical weight, but he was carrying the spiritual weight of guilt and shame. So therefore, to hear Jesus pronounce that his sins were forgiven would have lifted a great load from him. 
Jesus says these things, and the Pharisees, the teachers of the law that were sitting there, start thinking. And they've made decisions. And as I've read through this and prayed through this passage a number of times this week, I can see myself being like one of those friends lowering um, the paralyzed man through the roof and doing that for friends, doing whatever it takes. I can see myself ministering in Jesus' name, not being Jesus, but being Jesus' hands and feet and mouthpiece. But also, as I came to these verses, I can see something of myself in the teachers of the law. Because these teachers of the law have made decisions that they understand God and they understand the way that God works. They are right in saying only God can forgive sins. Yet they believe, they've made the decision that they are the authority on spiritual matters in that area. So when they say, who who does this guy think he is? We're the spiritual authority. We say who can forgive sins or not. Who's he? As they're thinking about Jesus. But also that they've not just understood, so not just decided what they, um, that they understand God. But they've decided the outcome for the man. They've decided and made a judgment of what is possible. And as I was praying through this, I realized that there are times that I do as well. And it might be linked to the reasons I listed earlier on. That I hope it isn't just me. But I wonder how many times we, we do this. That we ask, um, we ask God for something, but actually we don't believe that he's, he's going to do it. We've actually decided the outcome of a prayer before we finished it. We've decided the outcome of a meeting or a conversation or um, a, an interaction with someone. We've decided it. And we've limited the potential outcomes. I wonder if we've ever been blinded to seeing what Jesus wants to do in a person's life. And we might do a cover pastoral prayer that isn't actually believing that Jesus, the Son of God, is actually also in the room and is able to do something. Well, God bless you. And you're on the, you kind of bless them in, on, on their way. Is it just me? Or do others find themselves sitting like the teachers of the law at times? making a judgment on the outcome and that we understand the way that God works. I said that we would look at Jesus in two parts. The first part, he forgives sins. The second part, he shows his identity and authority and ability. He asks them, why are they thinking these things? Which is easier uh, for him to say, Your sins are forgiven or to get up, take your mat and walk. Jesus says in verse 10, I want you to know that the Son of Man has authority to forgive sins here on earth. So he said to the man, I tell you, get up, take your mat and go home. 
He shows his authority. He shows his identity as the Son of Man, a reference to um, a, a title used for the Messiah in the book of Daniel. He's basically saying, I am the Son of God, and I'm here on earth, and I have the authority of my Father to change people's lives here. I can deal with people's sin, and I can deal with uh, their ailments. I can bring transformation and bring the kingdom of heaven here on earth. As we read this story, are we going to leave it as a Sunday school story or are we going to see it as scripture and realize that Jesus is the Son of God and he has the authority and power and identity and ability to bring about complete transformation spiritually and physically in people's lives? I've been confessing lots of things, so I'll confess another thing. There have been times in my life where this has become a tale rather than a testimony. And like the prodigal son is a parable, it didn't actually happen, which we read last week. It's a parable, a story that Jesus told. Sometimes we read these kind of narratives and see it as a tale rather than a real-life testimony. Is it just me or are others falling into that trap at times? Maybe we become so accustomed to the narrative that we become numb to the awesomeness of what is happening. Father God, help us to tremble at your word. Help us to see the truth of who you are through this passage. Reveal yourself like you did in Capernaum. Reveal yourself to us this morning. This image up on the screen, of the guy looking at his feet. There would have been a moment in verse 12 where he had to do something. He's been instructed by Jesus, get up, take your mat and walk, go home. And there would have been a moment where he would have had to have the faith to try it. He would have had to have the faith to accept the, the forgiveness of sins and try to live free to actually try and move his, his toes. And they're all looking at his toes. Mark just says he got up. Would it have been a jump to his feet? Would it have been a moment of, actually, I can feel my legs again. It's really important that he got up, not just to show that Jesus has the power and authority and things. But it gives us an example for us to follow. And I believe there are people here this morning who are like this man. In verse 11 rather than verse 12. Jesus has told you you're forgiven. Jesus has told you to get up, leave that stuff behind, leave the floor behind and get up and walk by faith. And you're in this moment between verse 11 and verse 12. And Jesus is saying, get up. Have faith to rise up. Take your mat and go. Walk in your forgiveness. Walk in your freedom. Walk in your healing. Have that faith. And the crowd around just burst out in praise. 
And I come back to this question. Am I willing to do whatever it takes to bring people to the feet of Jesus? To allow Jesus to do for them whatever, do for them what only Jesus can do. We can console. We can pray for people. We can listen. Are we willing to do all of those things? We can invite people along. We can invite people for food. We can invite people to look at Scripture. But will we invite them to Jesus? Will we ask Jesus into the room? Or will we come up with reasons why not? Oh no, you can't share that again. You shared your worries and woes last week and the week before. (laughs) The week before that. And there's nothing changing because nothing ever will change. Do we ever have that within a life group situation? Or do we persistently bring them to Jesus and say, let's let Jesus minister into that. And then remind them, Jesus ministered into that. I'm going to help you walk in faith. Will we do whatever it takes, not just for people within our family, within our church family, but will we do whatever it takes to bring people who are far from God to understand that the kingdom of heaven has come near? Not to bring them to ourselves, not to bring them to church, not to bring them uh, to... um, a nice group of people, which we are, I believe. But to bring them to the Son of God, who has power and authority to forgive sins and to bring complete transformation. It might be this morning that you need to ask God for his forgiveness. I've had to do that this week. as a result of coming under the authority of his words and this passage. And I've asked God for grace to actually do this, for power to do this.